0: at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world. And you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf.
1: Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, and with us today is Greg Moran. We're going to talk about the future-ready leader and the idea of innovating how we lead. We're talking a lot about returning to work and hybrid workplace and all of those things and what the work is going to look like. What we haven't talked much about and I haven't read much about is what is leadership going to look like? Does the role of the leader change? And how do the tactics, even if the role overall doesn't change? So I am your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I'm also a regular contributor to Forbes and a fellow with the International Leadership Association. And Greg, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you? Sure.
2: Thanks for having me again. It's awesome to be here. It's uh, great to have an opportunity to talk about this incredibly relevant topic. My background is, is largely in the large corporate world. I started mm-hmm. in consulting and then spent a number of years as a, as a CIO and as a strategy leader at companies like Bank One, which is now mm-hmm. part of J.P. Morgan Chase, and then Ford Motor Company, and then most recently at Nationwide Insurance. And then the last four and a half years, I've been the chief operating officer of a startup here in Columbus called Aware. We provide software as a service software for the next generation collaboration business. And we are uh, focused on really enabling companies to lead in this new environment. I'm an executive fellow at Ohio University in the Robert D. Walter Strategic Center for Leadership. That's a role I've had for a number of years and really enjoy spending time with some impressive students uh, that are focused on strategic leadership.
1: Okay, so the topic is moving from traditional leadership to what we call at innovative leadership institute, innovative leadership. It is future ready leadership. So let's start with the first one. Leaders shifting from being guided primarily by a desire for personal success toward a more altruistic leader, so B Corp, conscious capitalism, those things, providing humble guidance on performance and the value of creating a positive impact from the organization. And there's a lot to unpack here from organizational structure and purpose and capitalism overall to personal leadership and humility. So let's talk about that one first.
2: Yeah, I love the the setup, and I think it's the right one to have first. I think the reality is that we often assume that self-interest can't be enlightened. Mm -hmm. And I don't accept that proposition. I think it's completely possible to bring together a desire for personal success Mm -hmm. on behalf of your family. Even that can be altruistic, but at the end of the day, looking for personal success so that you can contribute to society in unique ways that are important to you and take care of your family and give them opportunity is not incompatible with being a conscious capitalist right but i think it's often presented as an either or and so you know for me it's about redefining the role of a leader and having that role be more based in honestly if you wanted to be capitalistic about it what's the most efficient way to achieve success for all of the various stakeholders inside of a context of conscious capitalism that because of its efficiency, probably results in success for you as an individual. And I think that can be achieved. And I think there are some good examples of that when you look around at next generation leaders as you're talking about them.
1: Yeah, I would certainly expect that strong leaders create success for themselves and the organization. It just seems like it's a both and that by doing, quote, the right thing, So the conscious, deliberate, thoughtful decisions, I'm going to create the best outcome for everyone involved, which doesn't mean at every minute I get what I want. But it means over the tapestry of decisions I'm making for all of the stakeholders, we're being, again, thoughtful and considered in the impact across the system of each thing we do.
2: Absolutely, and I think there's that, that enlightened view of it, that thoughtful view of it, is really based in systemic thinking. I mean, mm-hmm. we, can, you know, we can go back to the introduction of systems thinking in the 1980s. I was gonna say Chris Argyris and <laughs> exactly. some of the early. Exactly, and you can find the roots of thoughtful leadership. Mm-hmm. It's really just stepping back and saying, wait a minute, how do I optimize the system Right. And it in no way obviates altruistic motives because it could be any type of organization that you're working in. Right. But it's still just a way of thinking about leadership that says, are we more likely to succeed if I'm focused on the enablement of success in my team Mm -hmm. than we are if I'm focused
1: on controlling my team and making sure they don't make any mistakes? Which ties to I was just in a conversation about good governance And the idea that people push back against controls versus being controlled. Good governance puts in place controls so that we don't have fraud and misuse. And frankly, as an employee, I want to work for an organization with good controls because then I am clear that everyone is behaving ethically. Right. I think it's
2: one of those stakeholder concerns that doesn't get acknowledged as much. I mean, the ultimate security for an employee is a growing, thriving organization that -hmm. can continue to offer them opportunity, right? And I agree with you 100%. Good governance actually creates freedom. It's when you don't have control, when you don't have discipline in an organization that you find strict hierarchies because there aren't the natural things in place, the guardrails that keep us safe. You know. And so certainly as a COO, controls are a piece of the story for me and uh, at our company. We started from day one as a six-person startup doing a full audit of our financials. Nobody does that with six people. We did it because I wanted to have that structure in place that would allow us to scale with confidence. And it's paying dividends even as recently as right now as we're talking to you know, potential investors for the future. The due diligence on our company gets cut by weeks when they realize that we have audited financials going back a number of years and we already have separation of duties and controls in place, right? So I'm with you 100% on that. And that's a piece of what it means to enable Because you give people confidence and you give them freedom to just do
1: their role. Well, and I would say then that dovetails with empowerment, that you are empowered to do your job. And again, there are guardrails. You're not empowered to do anything, just like you wouldn't empower them to go to work naked. There are just things you don't do. And by knowing the guardrails, again, it should increase my engagement.
2: Just on a side note, you just reminded me of something funny I saw at a big company yesterday that's Mm -hmm. welcoming their workers back to the office for the Mm -hmm. first time in 14 months. And they've got a whole PR campaign to keep it light and keep it fun Mm -hmm. for their employees. And as you walk in the front door, they have a sign that says, this is a pants zone, uh, reminding (laughs) you that after 14 months of potentially not wearing (laughs) pants on your Zoom calls, you should remember to wear them to work. But yes, there are intended to be... and, And I think when you design a system of control well, Uh it becomes invisible. The best systems of control aren't visible and don't hamper your action. They literally just point you in the right direction and then you're operating inside of that model incredibly effectively. And we can all sort of think about like well-designed freeways that enable cars to be moving safely at a high speed because the control system is Uh well-designed. And the right amount of structure actually creates way more freedom. I'm reminded of a story from uh, Chicago in like 1910, and there were something like five pedestrian deaths a day in the city of Chicago as cars were becoming, mm-hmm. you know, more and more common. That's a great example of not enough structure, right? And maybe we've overstructured it, but the reality is today you have probably 10 million more people in cars moving around Chicago today And it would be rare to have a pedestrian death from a vehicle accident, right? Probably not in New York, but in Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. But you get the
1: point, right? A little bit of structure actually enables a lot more freedom Mm -hmm. for everyone. Mm -hmm. And things like controls, who signs checks, purchasing authority, all of those things create an efficient and effective operation
2: they do and actually leads really well to the second point which is command and control mm-hmm. versus a leader leveraging the team for answers as part of the decision making process and if you're comfortable moving on to that one yep. uh, i think it's a really good you know my notes as i was thinking about this uh, discussion today i noted context versus control and once you have that basic system of control in place then your work as a leader should shift to be creating context for the team so that everybody knows what winning looks like I remember in my uh, work with, or you know, I've had organizations as big as 5,000 people. I don't have the luxury of explaining the details of next year's operating objectives to 5,000 people, which means I have to find a way to communicate it in a way that's meaningful, hopefully, to all 5,000. And I looked at it through the lens of if I can't create clarity of purpose for the organization in two pages such that every person in the organization can find themselves on the page, then I haven't done my work yet, right? And I tried to discipline myself to getting the messaging so clear that it didn't take more than two pages, and everybody knew where they fit in the picture. And that's a hard thing to do. A 10-page document's easy, but nobody reads 10-page documents. Nobody listens to 10-page PowerPoints. Mm-hmm. Two? you might have a shot. So I always looked at that context objective as maybe one of the most important things I do as a leader. Because if everybody knows what winning looks like, then the degree to which I have to inspect those activities goes down. And the efficiency of the organization in achieving its goals goes up. And your ability to leverage people's creativity because they're shooting for the same goal goes way up, right? So it becomes this you know, flywheel of increasing momentum and success because everybody's pulling in the same direction.
1: And then to build on that, the idea that more and more we're seeing employees wanting purpose. And so when you use the words, find themselves in that. I have a sense of purpose in the work I do. I'm not just showing up because I get paid. But in fact, I make a contribution to something bigger than myself that I am proud of doing.
2: I couldn't agree more. And that's a great way of talking about what I mean by find yourself on the page. Because the connection should be not only to the organization that they might be working in, but ultimately to the consumer of the product and service that we provide. right? So you know, most recently at Nationwide, I had a 2,000-person shop in IT infrastructure that doesn't feel like it's connected to the customer. But I always started that sort of context exercise by making sure that we were connecting that what we did to the actual experience of mm-hmm. a policyholder at Nationwide Insurance. Because ultimately, we enabled that. In fact, we brought the business to life every morning. Right? Because we were the circulatory and the nervous system of the company. And when people understood that, you know, my work on the network that enables our agents to communicate with us and communicate with the customer in an effective manner is directly affecting the experience of somebody who's just had a car accident and is having a moment of truth. That feels really different than, can you speed up the network today? <laughs>
1: Uh, Having had a car wreck not too long, minor bump, what I wanted to be able to do was know that I could get my car fixed so I could continue to go to work. This was pre-working from home and no pants. Um, (laughs) And so as you're talking, that was exactly what went across my mind is the difference between the experience of I have to go through a bunch of hoops because I was the one who got in the wreck, which felt punitive versus my insurance company took care of me. Very different experience. Right, and
2: so, you know, in in that particular business, connecting what we did in infrastructure every day was the beginning of context. Because otherwise, to your point, you're kind of like, I'm just meaninglessly in this building working on switches in the network control center. To what end, right? Yeah, Particularly if you're working third shift in an operations center, right? Mm -hmm. and, And you haven't seen the light of day, you know, or anybody but your immediate co workers for six months, the connection can get lost. And so, starting with that broader connection to purpose of mm-hmm. the organization and who we serve and why we serve them, and then you can begin to ratchet it down to, and here's the connection point to you, and here's why this is important. Even if it's an efficiency objective, you know, this year we've got to take 10% out of the cost of whatever it might be, right? Well, why is that important? Well, that's important because. We can't serve the customers we want to serve if we're not competitive.
1: You know, again, I was just on a call where somebody was making the observation, why do we want to get more efficient so we can make our ex-owners have fancier stuff? And again, making the connection to our end customers who are trying to afford car insurance during a pandemic. The efficiency often gets passed to people who can now balance the economics of food, medicine, car. I guess we didn't pay much insurance during the pandemic because we weren't driving much. But those balancing acts, and again, the context really matters. It's about creating the experience for our end customer and also making sure we get paid fairly.
2: There's always an assumption that if you're saving costs to make margin, that, you know, you're paying off somebody, some other stakeholder in the system. And there certainly are examples of that. But in the context of what we're talking about, an enlightened leader here, uh, you know, an innovative leader, somebody who's a future ready leader. They're looking at it for the lens of we want to provide the best product or service to our customers. And if I lose my ability to compete in this marketplace, I lose my opportunity to provide that service to that customer. And if you believe in the mission and you believe what we're doing, you should want that mission to be sustained. I do think that it does, you know, raise an interesting point that can be controversial, and that is what is the value? of a future ready leader relative to the value of the rest of the people in the organization. And I do believe that there are a number of examples where there's a real disconnect between the value created by a leader who's maybe taking a traditional view and saying, I'm the CEO, so therefore I'm creating all of this value and their income is 200 times the income of a frontline worker. I think those are the sorts of things that a thoughtful, future-ready leader is gonna step back from and say, wait a minute, that's not responsible, it's not aligned, and it's not proportional. So what are some ways that we can create a compensation model, for example, that doesn't create this bifurcation, if you will, in the
1: workforce that's enabling the very product you're trying to offer? Especially where your workforce resents the heck out of your leadership team. If they feel like they've been treated unfairly so that you can, you know, fill in the blank, buy the yacht or whatever the folklore is, whether or not it's even true, the folklore can disengage them.
2: Absolutely, and I think that's why it's such an important thing to address head on and be transparent with your team on. And I think a thoughtful leader is going to do that and say, okay, what would make sense here, right? If I'm ultimately being a part of how we create this value, what's the best way for me to be compensated for that? And you find, I think, some more forward-thinking CEOs that are tying their income more to the outcomes of other stakeholders. And I think increasingly boards are expecting that versus the compensation being tied directly to some financial outcome metric that is engineered really to compensate that leader or that CEO in a way that is really out of line with, A, the work they're doing and way out of line with, the value being created by the other people in the organization who actually do the work.
1: I just got certified as an ESG board person, so environmental, social, and governance. And the governance is a big part of running an effective organization. And while smaller companies aren't yet subjected to this, larger companies' money comes from the big institutions, and many of them are looking at ESG. So I would anticipate that CEO comp will come under more scrutiny for larger public companies already has and will continue to be more so.
2: In fact, there's a debate that, that began to rage just yesterday as the SEC came out and said that they are going to demand further disclosure from public companies with respect to the impact they have on the environment. And I don't know where it's going to settle out, but the debate is an interesting illustration of your point because there is, in fact, a perception that one of the stakeholders is the environment. Is the environment itself. The question then becomes, I like the fact that we're having the debate because the question is no longer is that a relevant stakeholder. The question is, what's the best way to have the disclosure be helpful and insightful? Because it is very much an apples to oranges game, depending on the industry. And, and the country. Exactly. And the consumers need to be educated with respect to what they're reading. You know, dumbing it down to a pure carbon footprint is not going to be very insightful as an example because most people have no idea how that's calculated and what it means and depending on your industry lower may not be better relative to a different industry right and so i think it's good though that we're seeing as you point out an increasing focus on a broader set of stakeholders in the equation and i think it does create greater accountability for value creation
1: and for the role of leaders so that let's go into the next one then A leader picks a direction in a black-and-white manner and tends to stay the course dogmatically, which a decade or 20 years ago or 30 years ago may have made sense. The idea now that, as you just illustrated, events that are happening in our ecosystem, like how we can raise money to continue to expand, if I don't have access to capital because our... Carbon footprint is too high, or our, our impact on the environment is too high. I'm needing to pivot no matter what my capital structure is, no matter what my plans were. So, this idea that leaders go from a much more black and white right and wrong to what I call the mind of the scientist, that I am shifting more quickly, more of the variables in my world are changing, and I'm having to respond often with insufficient information. So I move from build the plan, work the plan, to create the hypothesis, test the hypothesis, refine and the word pivot that I realize some of us don't love, but I'm having to adapt regularly, and my business is adapting, and that's a different set of skills than many of us were taught.
2: Yes, I agree, and just two concepts that really came to mind for me in this conversation. And the first, really has to do more with hubris and how so many of our corporate systems really reinforce the hubris in senior leadership. And I've seen so many examples of it and worked uh, in organizations that have illustrated this to me where you take a senior leader and you surround them with a group of people who are gonna isolate them from the implications of bad decisions that they make or bad things that they say. And some of those events happen in real time and we get lots of visibility to them but some of them come out much later and you realize where were the people that would have been in a position to change that outcome and why is it that we think that a leader who makes a mistake should not face up to that mistake because they're a senior leader a good example I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday. I happened to be at the Grace Hopper event, which is the largest technology uh, gathering of technology women in the country. And uh, I'm, I'm hopeful it'll, you know, revive itself post- pandemic. But I was in the audience. Uh, I'd sponsored nationwide into the Grace Hopper event, and we would go there and recruit. And I'm in the keynote speech, and it's, it's about 10,000 women in an audience. And, and Sacha Nadella, mm. uh, the CEO of Microsoft, was being interviewed by one of the sponsors, uh, one of the leaders of Grace Hopper, and one of his own board members. And she asked him a question, and he really fumbled it badly. And I won't go into the details. It's not relevant. But he stepped up. And said, "I really fumbled that." And the next day was on stage saying, "I messed that up. That was not a thoughtful answer. So I need to learn. So I'm committed to coming to Grace Hopper for the next five years, and I'll be on the I'll be on the floor." And he was, because I was there the next year, and his booth was right next to ours. And to me, that's at one end of the spectrum where there's an allowance for making mistakes. I think you you can't argue that Satya has not been a good leader for Microsoft. The value creation is huge. You also don't see that as incompatible with him making a mistake and addressing it versus other organizations where you'll see a CEO say or do something terrible and there's no feedback, nobody in a position to give them feedback and help them grow. So that's a problem. And then the second piece of it is you're talking about the science thing. Is it all about, to me, it's all about iteration. When yes. you think about how science works you try something, and if it doesn't work, you try something else. And that concept of iteration, particularly as a startup leader, is huge, right? Life is iteration. We are iterating multiple times a week on multiple fronts as we try and get the formula right for go to market, for product development, for marketing, et Pricing. Cetera.
1: Pricing, all of that. I had a client who was a researcher in, in hearing science, and she would say, It is as important to do an experiment and prove myself wrong as prove myself right. Especially in the startup world, if you're running at the wrong direction or the wrong technology or the wrong pricing, whatever the structural piece is, you've got to know it and as quickly as possible.
2: Honestly, you can't afford it in the startup world. You have to have the humility to see when a mistake's been made and immediately correct it because you don't have a lot of capital and you don't have a lot of time, right? Uh, whereas I think in a big company that's that's generating and has momentum, you can make big mistakes and there's no real accountability. One of the beauties of the startup world is there's instant accountability. And, you know, you've got to be deploying capital in a way that will create outcomes, right? That doesn't mean everything has to succeed by any means, but it means you got to acknowledge something not working and fix it, right? It's not going to age well. It's not wine, <laughs>
1: The idea of accountability, I think, is such an important one. And again, we see client organizations where leaders are reacting to accountability like what we started with, having structure and controls, that if you hold me accountable means you don't trust me, rather than the feedback is crucial to be successful.
2: I completely agree. I I do think it's worth a a brief mention of the dark side of accountability. And, you know, I'm not sure what your perspective on this is, but I do see a dark side of accountability emerging out of what we're we're calling now cancel culture, Mm -hmm. where there's this concept that somebody made a mistake 20 years ago and couldn't possibly have evolved from that point in their life. And I'm not saying we shouldn't acknowledge that mistake, but there has to be room for grace and growth. And I, as a leader, have made many mistakes, some of which were more damaging than others. And I try to acknowledge those. But I've certainly grown as a leader as well. So there is a dark side to accountability that sort of says it, it needs a statute of limitations and or it at least needs a and who are you now sort of moment, right? Have you grown? Have you become somebody different? Have you changed your perspectives on something? And I do think. We've got to be very careful to preserve that, because that's how people become great leaders in most cases. They're not born as great leaders. They've learned.
1: Well, and that's the next one, is leaders need to continue to learn and grow. And to your point, you know, I often hear from people above a certain age who say, boy, aren't we glad that we didn't have cell phones when we were in college, in our first jobs, doing all the stupid things we did. Now someone may come back and recount a story, but at least there's not a play out of it. Because most of the people I know who are trying and experimenting and pushing the envelope, we've done really stupid stuff. We're lucky to be alive, let alone... I think
2: there's at least an anecdotal correlation between people who push the boundaries and people who evolve to be great leaders.
1: And within limits. Absolutely. Not... No, I'm not
2: talking about, beating you know, people, lying, their... cheating, or stealing, mm-hmm. right? But people who were trying to find their place in the world. And I think there are, you know, there is somewhat of a correlation between people who are looking for finding boundaries. Again, mm-hmm. the boundaries aren't pretend, so some of them are real, but are trying to figure out a way to get something done. And I think you see that in the startup world a lot right, where there's the challenging of norms, right, when you think of something like Uber. Uber was born out of the challenging of norms and saying, like, maybe there's a different way to do this. And I'm certainly not here to argue that Uber is a perfect company. They have demonstrated beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are not perfect, and there are aspects of their business model that are very exploitive. So that's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that model of ride-sharing was born out of a challenging of the assumptions. Under those assumptions, if you had just stuck with the rules, that's illegal, right? But they pushed the boundaries and found that the consumer wanted this service. And then regulators, city managers, mayors, et cetera, were all forced to go, okay, how are we gonna deal with this? Our people want this. That's a very different problem to solve for than you're not allowed to do that. Oh, okay, I'll go home. Right, So I think there is a challenging of
1: norms that can be really, really important to creating value. And I would say challenging of external norms, systems, processes, structures, and also my internal norms. Who am I and what do I stand for? When I'm pushed, what are my absolute core values that I will not violate? So I think there is a bit of knowing myself and... Finding creative ways to solve problems and also knowing where I will ethically not cross. Because I think back to the balance between structure, process, control, and freedom, both can be in play at the same time.
2: I agree. And it's, it's kind of interesting you bring that up. It's something I focus on very early in the development of the leaders that we teach at Ohio University in the strategic leadership program that uh, I'm involved in. In the earliest sessions, they're able to get into the program as sophomores, and usually when I sit down with them as sophomores, the very first conversation I have with them is about values and how important it is for them to take their values with them in the workplace. Because many of them are under the impression that I should enter the workplace as a blank slate, and I'll take on the values that I see around me that will make me successful. Well, following that premise, you get Enron. Right? You get people sitting in rooms figuring out how to defraud their investors and their customers, you know, because they've worked themselves into a corner where there's no ethical way out, right? So, I couldn't agree with you more. And by the same token, I think your values can evolve. And I would say, you know, I'm a great example of that. I grew up as a missionary kid in Africa in an incredibly dogmatic world that was incredibly focused on rules, Mm -hmm. right? And I... I would be the first to say that some of those rules, in retrospect, seem ridiculous and had no grounding in actual value to other human beings. They simply had their roots in strong preferences that people in that particular denomination held to because it gave them a sense of identity. And I'm not judging them for having that point of view, but... I certainly evolved on some of those things. You know, if I, the college I went to, if I went to a movie, I got a three-day suspension.
1: Seems right. not practical given your current Right, life. so
2: it's just, yeah, it just, it was kind of one of those things where that was a preference of that community and I had to honor it when I chose to join it, but it doesn't mean I have accepted that as an ethical boundary. Certainly was not to me an ethical boundary.
1: And that to the point of leaders grow and evolve often when they're tested. It's easy to say, I value integrity. When I'm painted into that corner, what do I do? We often have the beautiful statements, and it takes a lot of grit to really stand up when pushed and take the stand.
2: Yeah, I think Wells Fargo is the best example of that. And I share that a lot with the students I talk to. So Wells Fargo had 5,000 bankers that... Created false accounts on behalf of customers so that they could get their bonus. Wells Fargo incented their bankers on what they called share of wallet, the number Uh of accounts that they had with a customer. And if you didn't achieve growth of a certain amount in accounts, you didn't make your – Bonus. And you know, what I've shared with the students is you have to know the answer to the question as to whether or not you're going to do that long before you're in that moment. Because I promise you, when you have two mortgages, a kid in private school, and you're trying to buy a lake house and you're going to miss your bonus and you don't know the answer as to whether or not you'll cheat. You cheat. You cheat. A hundred percent of the time. And then I challenge them to say, five thousand bankers, do you think not one of them was an Ohio University graduate? And do you understand the journey from where you're sitting now to to sitting at a keyboard where you're hitting enter to defraud a customer? You gotta know the answer to that before you're in the moment.
1: And part of that is taking back to our systems thinking, bigger picture view, and looking at the risks, looking at who do I wanna be.
2: Right, and all those 5,000 people are not employable in banking anymore, they've lost their jobs. You know, that was a win the battle, lose the war proposition based on a very simple ethical choice.
1: I was in the utilities industry during the Enron crisis and actually setting up trading floors and working with people who were building those algorithms about when the heat goes up, what do you do with your baseload generation so that you can maximize your income? And at what point do you say... We're also here to provide power for people who are going to experience bad consequences because they can't afford to pay for their electricity. And they have health challenges.
2: I agree. And I, as you know, I like to bring relevant sort of current events into focus. And, and this one, you know, maybe gets me in a little bit of trouble, but I just read about it in the Wall Street Journal today. One of the big New York investment companies that I won't name for, you know, for purposes of this illustration, but anybody can find out, has just committed, I think it was $6 billion to a real estate investment fund where they're going to buy houses and then rent them out And also do leasebacks from owners that are strapped for cash and say, you can sell us your house and we'll lease it back to you Mm -hmm. um, so that we can ease your financial burden. The implications of this are going to be huge. You're basically taking a housing market and making it inaccessible to the typical middle class person because they can't compete with a cash deal from a big investment company and it's gonna have the effect of further inflating home prices. And so you're gonna take significant swaths. I mean, you've got counties in the US now where 50% of the sales are to investment companies. I look at that and say, somebody's gotta step back and look at that from an ethical standpoint, from a societal good standpoint and say, is this the right answer? It's possible, just like declining balance mortgages were possible in 2007. Were they right? I think we can look back with a pretty clear lens and say, yeah, that was not a product that should have been brought to market.
1: You know, the other thing, as you mentioned this, is the question of equity and redlining and something that makes housing less accessible especially to our minority communities, again, accelerates the burden on some groups more than others.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the data is relatively clear that home ownership is one of the fundamental building blocks of generational wealth. I think we do have to pay attention. That leads us maybe to the next one, which is about a leader managing people to perform by being autocratic and controlling. I've got to believe in these organizations, there's some people that are going, hey, uh, is this really a good idea? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, at least they're thinking it. Right. But it, The question is, can I push back? Isn't an environment that is safe to say to whomever, a boss, Who controls my fate in some ways versus the leader who is, as you described earlier, I motivate people by creating a strategy that they can find themselves in. I coach and mentor them. I create opportunities for them to grow and thrive, not tell them to sit down, shut up, and do what they're told.
2: Right. Your definition of a future-ready leader is a leader that motivates people to perform through strategic focus, mentoring, coaching, emotional, and social intelligence. Does that sound like a leader who doesn't want to listen to the opinions of his team or her team? What came to mind for me as I read this was when I was at Ford, I began drawing my org charts upside down Uh for any presentation. And I did that because I wanted to send the message that I'm not sitting at the top of the hierarchy. I'm sitting at the bottom of the hierarchy. I didn't do work. I had 5,000 people. I mean, I did work, but I didn't do the work of like Coding coding and all that sort of stuff. So I really was sitting there as infrastructure for the organization. I'm there to support the team. And if I'm there to support the team and they're the experts at what they do, I had, I think at Ford, I had 300 PhDs on my team. They knew things that I did not know and was never going to know. My job is to enable all of that capability to brought to bear on behalf of the customers of Ford Motor Company and the other employees of Ford Motor Company and the investors of Ford Motor Company. And so that concept I think really flips the paradigm of what your job is as a leader.
1: And yet I hear people say I work for my employees and I am very clear that we all work for the mission. I don't work for Bill down the hall. No matter who we are, we're working for the mission of the organization, which then makes the ethical question different. Would my brand support this behavior? That's exactly right. So my job is, yes, to absolutely steward the welfare and the engagement of my team, but also in service of my customers, and that's often a difficult dance.
2: It is, but I think it leads, if you allow yourself to think that way and realize that it's not about you. I tried to take that language of somebody works for me out of my vocabulary mm-hmm. a long time ago. Yeah, because I think it just reinforces that paradigm. One of the very first things I tell employees, I meet with every employee when they join AWARE and we do a culture session. And one of the things we talk about there is... There's no hierarchy here in terms of communication. We have different hats we have to wear, different Mm -hmm. roles to play as we try and, you know, grow this company, but there's no gatekeeping. If you want to talk to anybody in the company, you can talk to that person in the company.
1: Yet you have accountabilities legally from a governance perspective.
2: Agreed. But those are not incompatible with the free flow of, of communication. In fact, they're enhanced by the free flow of communication because they narrow the gap in time and distance between the CEO and the frontline worker, because there's no hierarchy they have to go through. They can just go tell our CEO, hey, I think we've got a problem.
1: What I was trying to illustrate is that open communication doesn't minimize the fact that you still have responsibilities. Absolutely. Flat doesn't mean Greg's name isn't on something that commits him to a fiduciary responsibility Absolutely. and my name is not
2: right and we have tight governance like there's a group of elected officers that the board is empowered to commit the company to a transaction we respect that but that's a role to play right it doesn't define who you're allowed to talk to it doesn't define what you're allowed to talk about
1: right i agree i'm just trying to point out the distinction that people often link those together, and you have decoupled them. And I, I want people to hear that these are decoupled and that by flattening the organization doesn't, in fact, minimize I'm still accountable for certain things. And that box on the org chart comes with accountabilities, responsibilities, responsibilities, that irrespective of who I talk to, I still own those.
2: Absolutely. And and I think the, the topic we're on here is really about autocracy, you know, versus enablement. <laughs> and <laughs> I think when people embrace the role as the definition of who they are, as a leader is when we get into trouble Mm -hmm. with that Mm -hmm. like when people use the language of well these people work for me yeah do they think they actually (laughs) work work for the company company and the company is trying to work on behalf of its various stakeholders and why don't we focus on that it's just yeah like the office thing i remember Mm -hmm. i've worked at companies where they had all this hierarchy around offices and I changed my habit a number of years ago that when people would say, hey, I really like your office, I would immediately say, it's not my office. It's my company's office. I just happen to be sitting here. And by the way, if I'm not sitting here and you need to use this office sometime, it is yours as it is mine. It was just another little way to reinforce Mm -hmm. that I'm playing a role, but the role doesn't define me. The office I sit in doesn't define me. What defines us both is the shared mission. Mm-hmm. And I've got a job to do in that, in service of that mission, and you've got a job to do, and I'll own it. But I also want you to feel empowered and own your role in that mission. And it's not subject to my interpretation of it, right? I mean, to some degree, I'm going to try and create context because that's part of my role, but it's not autocracy.
1: Right, right, right. So that leads us into then the next one leaders tending to the numbers and using quantitative measures that drive those numbers. I still think that is valuable. And it now turns to leaders paying attention to performance, customer satisfaction, employee engagement, community impact, cultural coherence, and a range of other measures, all of which form the tapestry or the context of who I am Who my mission serves.
2: I couldn't agree more. And I think it's one of these things where, you know, what came to mind for me was the difference between insights and opinions. We often see leaders, when they sort of ascend to a new role, believe that what it does is it gives them license to essentially impose their opinions on the organization they're now in charge of. You'll see a CEO, and he or she will, you know, ascend to that position or be hired into that position and say, we're going to move in a different direction without taking that time to really understand the system that they're taking over and what they're really accountable for. And uh, that's really dangerous. You know, when you look at going back even to Deming, Deming said the most dangerous thing you can do is make changes to a system you don't understand. And the work of leadership now in an increasingly complex world where you're accountable for a much broader range of factors requires deep understanding and insights. It's actually the business we're in at AWARE. Like We're trying to support the work of leadership in large organizations by creating insights for those leaders to better support their employees, better understand the efficacy of their mission and whether or not it's well understood, all those things. The work of leadership is now becoming insights versus opinions and deep understanding and leveraging process measures. Why would you wait to do an employee engagement survey once a year when there's tools available that can give you an insight into employee engagement every day?
1: And you can respond every day. And I've heard your examples. Let me see if I can channel Greg Moran for a second. (laughs) where. And insight changes what creates a coachable moment rather than litigation.
2: Absolutely. And the difference between those two is time. In so many cases, if you really step back and look at the difference between a moment when somebody harasses a coworker and it's coached in the moment mm-hmm. versus when somebody harasses a coworker and six months later there's been implications from that harassment that have changed the trajectory of somebody's career, provably, you're now in a lawsuit. And insight can give you the ability to address that time gap. And I think the work of leadership now, particularly post-pandemic, when there is no water cooler anymore, and you're going to be in a hybrid work model whether you want to or not, or you won't be able to compete for, for talent, We have to get serious about this work of creating insights and having process measures, not just outcome measures, in place to support the work of leadership because it's now going to be essential.
1: You know, one of the things that I was just reading is about leader blind spots. So we all have preconceived notions. Our brain will reinforce what we're thinking. Without those insights, we are really at risk of making suboptimal to bad decisions, and to your point, who wouldn't purchase the insights across a range, so from AWARE, from other organizations.
2: Right. I'm certainly not saying we have all the insights. I'm saying we are we are intentionally developing a tool set that specifically mm-hmm. is designed to give insight to leaders. It's also designed to give insights to individuals that are participating in that organization. We want to create a value proposition for everybody because we don't think insights are limited in value to leaders, but in this context, we're talking about this being the work of leadership. And I fundamentally believe that the work of leadership is changing in the face of secular change that we just experienced. And, you know, McKinsey's already come out and said it's the fourth industrial revolution. I mean, we're we're past the point of no return on coming to understand that this is secular change, not cyclical change.
1: That's a really important point is How do I, as a leader, even if I'm doing things, tasks I have done before, I have to do them in a way that is very different going forward? And having quantitative insights enables me to make much wiser decisions. Those weren't available 10 years ago.
2: I agree. And by the way, I'd add qualitative. Qualitative is equally important. Mm -hmm. How are people feeling? That's qualitative, not just quantitative. Right? Or when you launch a new initiative, do you understand how many people really understood it? How many people agreed and disagreed, et cetera? I think your model here is really, really valuable. And I think it's a great conversation for us to be having. And hopefully, our dialogue today has been helpful.
1: Well, and for our listeners, it would be interesting for you to look at each of these as a continua and think about where are you now? where should you be given what your role is in the organization and where do you aspire to be in a year or five years from now such that you can be the leader who makes the biggest impact on the organization's mission.
2: Couldn't agree more. I think that's a great way to wrap it up and and I think being intentional about that can make such a difference in your journey versus just sort of reacting to what you see around you.
1: And given the volatility, It's easy to react. I can't anticipate everything, but boy, there's a lot I can anticipate. And working with the right teams of people, the right insights and the right mindset will really enable me to be much more a much better steward of the organization's mission.
2: It's interesting. You remind me of a David White uh, story. David White's a poet laureate. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember listening to him one time, and he talked about a Native American teaching story that stuck with me over the years. And it was, you know, what do you do when you're lost in the forest? And the answer is, stand still. The forest around you is not lost. And the point is that you need to get insight from what's around you It gives you clues to where you are. And from those clues, you can find a path forward. And I think we are in one of those moments. That doesn't mean stand still forever, but that does mean taking the time to gain insight is not wasted time.
1: Let's close on that. What a brilliant point and a a wonderful sentiment. Greg, thank you. I love our conversations and look forward to sharing this with our listeners. Well, thank you for having me. For our listeners, thank you for joining us. Please share this information with your friends, your colleagues. It is so crucial at this point in history for each of us to evolve in the ways we can to meet the needs that we are here to address. And each of you is crucial in your own lives and in your own ways. And being your best selves and best leaders really enables you to make the biggest and most positive impact on the world. So please share this, like it, and join us again.
0: Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.